Welcome to BTG Insights on Demand, a podcast from Business Talent Group, where we discuss the latest in the future of work and other pressing business issues. Our guests today are Stephen Wonker and Charlotte Despratt of New Markets Advisors, a boutique consulting firm specializing in innovation opportunities and capabilities. As Managing Director, Stephen advises companies worldwide on creating and executing bold plans for growth. He is also an award-winning business author, entrepreneur, and pioneer in the development and use of smartphones. Charlotte is a principal in New Markets Advisors and head of the firm's Paris office. In 2021, she was named Significant Insights Global 30 Under 30 list, which recognizes rising insights leaders who have made an impact on the global market research industry and who help to accelerate positive change through their use of data and insights. In this episode of BTG Insights on Demand, Stephen and Charlotte join Jennifer Napier, BTG's Chief Marketing Officer, to discuss their recent working paper, Navigating Uncertainty with Future Casting, which discusses a four-step process to help organizations prepare for uncertainty in a time of frequent and intense disruption. Without further ado, here are Stephen, Charlotte, and Jen. Hi, Stephen and Charlotte. It's a pleasure to speak with you today. It's great to be here. Thank you. I feel like this is a perfect time for us to discuss future casting as we're just in this whole new wave of uncertainty around the latest variant and what it means for businesses who've already had to sort of innovate and adapt so much over the last few years. Um, you know, many co- companies were caught by surprise by the pandemic as, as, as I was, as you were, um, and had to act so fast just to survive. And in many cases, the quick fixes left them um, little room to think about long-term strategy or, or emerging opportunities. You argue that future casting can help business leaders not only prepare for uncertain future, but really shape it. So I'd like to kick off by just what is future casting and why is it so important right now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, future casting and other scenario planning methods have definitely been very top of mind since COVID hit. Um, And really, our idea for future casting came from looking at their own clients struggle with using existing methods. Um, At the same time, even though it's born out of a certain dissatisfaction with current techniques, we're certainly using a lot of different elements from these existing techniques, simply sort of packaging them differently with a different set of objectives in mind to make this as useful as possible. Um, So... The real challenge we saw with today's techniques is sort of the fact that scenario planning and wargaming, we have a rough idea of what they're for, sort of plotting the future, understanding our place in it, but there's no clear path as to how you're supposed to do that. Um, Very often, there doesn't seem to be a very clear process for either collecting the data that you're supposed to analyze or making sense of it in the end. Um, There's no clear understanding of how you're supposed to prioritize trends that you identify, especially given that not every trend is as easily quantifiable as the next. So how do you try and sift through that um, as the company looking at this? And more more importantly, really, at the very end of this exercise, uh, partially because, again, there is this lack of process behind it, it's not very clear what the action implications are in the end. So a lot of companies that we've seen will go through that process, through those different steps. They will try to sort of wrangle with different kinds of of data, different sources uh, before them. But then at the very end, it's not clear what 
what they're supposed to do about it, what the action implications are. So we sort of looked at the situation, decided that we wanted to find ways to improve the overall approach, give this both more rigor and more uh, practical usability um, so that anyone can sort of, you know, take this, pick this up and just implement in their own company, in their own context and make this as useful as any sort of future oriented work like scenario planning tries to be. So that's really the overall reasoning behind um, the process we devised here. So it's really about bringing process, rigor, structured thinking to the whole idea of thinking about the future. I like that. Okay, so let's talk about how it how it starts off. Um, you said that there's there's four steps. So the first is um, knowing your environment. That's the first step, correct? In preparing for the future. But how can organizations map out such an uncertain landscape in a way that captures the big pictures of all the risks and opportunities and potential disruption? So I'll tell you what people often do, which is wrong, and then what we do, which I think is the right way to do it. They will often either just focus on one sort of scenario uh, based upon facts that have been in-house or that they purchased through some secondary market research like, you know, Gartner or Frost and Sullivan. And, uh, you know, they'll set a trajectory uh, that, you know, this is the way the world is going to be. So let's go plan for it. Or maybe they'll have a base case, best case, and worst case. And all the time they will just focus on the base case. Um, That ignores a whole lot of uncertainty out there and treats all facts as sort of being on an equal playing field, and they're not. So what we do is borrow a tool and adapt it from the Department of Defense in the U.S., uh, which we call the uncertainty matrix. Uh, And what we do is disaggregate facts into four quadrants. There are, and the quadrants are defined by, um, the certainty that you have around a certain risk or assumption and the accessibility of data that you have around that. So you can imagine at the the top left of that, you've got the known knowns, uh, what you're sure you know, and you've got the facts in-house to prove it. And there we want to challenge those truths selectively, but a lot of companies get into trouble because they are so darn certain uh, that something is the way it is, uh, and they'll gravitate to hard numbers because hard typically drives out soft. Uh, and in an environment of rapid flux, you may not actually really uh, know that, but you think you know that. So we want to uh, lay those out and then uh, selectively drill in where we think there needs to be challenged. And then next to that, you have what we call are the unknown knowns where the organization knows certain things, but that hasn't filtered to the strategy team or to the C-suite. Uh, so there it's working with people who are actually interacting with the market on more of a day-to-day basis. They might be in sales or customer success. Uh, they might have come in from competitors, for instance. And let's try to surface what they know that might bring in a little bit of color or divergence into the picture. Uh, so there, that's all about collaboration to get those opinions or facts onto the table. Uh, and then 
on the, the bottom left, we've got the known unknowns. So these are the uncertainties. And let's you know, get very specific about what is uncertain within that. Are there diverging assumptions that people have? Can we make those discoverable facts that we can go out and quickly uh, lay to rest? There are some things that you're not going to know for a while. Okay, but let's uh, understand what those are, why we won't know them, and how ultimately we're going to be able to find those out. And then finally, um, there's what's called the unknown unknowns. Uh, and you've got a lot of danger there, right? What are those X factors that can come out and really surprise you? So there you can use uh, things like scenario planning and wargaming to bring those out, uh, much like the Department of Defense does, to find those unknown unknowns before they can torpedo your efforts. Um, so four different quadrants, four different approaches to get at the, the facts or uncertainties in each of those. You had said in the known known quadrant that um, oftentimes people focus on the hard numbers because the hard, hard numbers drive out the soft. Can you, can you explain that a little bit to me? So in environments of rapid change, um, people will still gravitate to trend lines and uh, you know, data that they may have from either their own market research or from secondary market research reports, which are often a couple years old and uh, don't really reflect what's going on today. Um, but they want the data. Um, so rather than doing a uh, quick, easy survey, which you know, can be fielded pretty rapidly, actually, uh, they will use this old data and then they'll make tremendously faulty assumptions. Uh, you know, Charlie and I worked with a, um, a healthcare company that was looking at its China healthcare strategy. Uh, and, uh, you know, that people were asserting, no, you know, Chinese healthcare, it's, it's all going to be very hospital based. It's all about trust in the physician. And they were ignoring what was going on with uh, Tencent and Alibaba uh, and, and some of the big trends of virtualizing care. Uh, and then when COVID hit, some of the provinces really went hard at uh, digitalizing care delivery very, very rapidly, which they can do in China. Uh, and looking at the historical data ignored the underlying trends, it ignored the capability of Chinese healthcare to turn very rapidly on its delivery model. Uh, and so, you know, that client ended up getting caught out and, you know, they realized it, thankfully, and they were able to pivot. But um, data can be a very dangerous thing when you don't look at what's really underlying the data. That's really helpful. Thank you for that. In your paper, when you were talking about certain matrix, you, you mentioned that you need to focus on knowing your environment and that always requires knowing yourself. What do you mean by know yourself? So here the idea is to essentially have companies really focus on asking the hard questions and that includes making sure you're looking at any inherent biases or assumptions that have long held sway inside your own organization. So that could be assumptions about the market that have been sort of widespread across the company, any sort of biases, especially about your own position inside the market. So I'm thinking here of uh, clients and companies we've seen that sort of become somewhat enamored sometimes with their own company uh, stories, um, you know, sort of 
your your own strengths, where 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 you think your value proposition lies, that sort of thing. And it, it's very easy to get wrapped up in that without sort of testing that over time, this still it's still valid. And not only is it still valid, but is it also valid everywhere? Um, it's sort of there's definitely a geographic component to this. Uh, Stephen mentioned earlier the the example with the client in, in China earlier. That's a very good example because we've definitely seen that in a lot of contexts um, with a lot of companies sometimes thinking in a more U.S.-centric fashion, certainly when it comes to North American companies, but really with the idea of whatever assumption you have internally, making sure that it's valid across different contexts. Um, so the geography component is important, but also, again, making sure your research is current, so not relying on dated market reports, and making sure that you're not sort of staying too wrapped up in the company's own ideas about itself. Um, so really, again, it's being able to ask the hard questions, which is not easy, especially in certain corporate cultures. Um, and we'll talk about how to handle that in a minute. But also being able to be comfortable with ambiguity and not just sort of going where the data is immediately readily available, sort of what we were talking about a little earlier. That's great. Okay. Let's turn to step two in the four-step process of casting. And that's about getting to know your customers. How, how would you recommend that organizations rethink um, the customer journey and customer behavior? How do you approach it with future casting? So it's about 20 years ago, uh, I was working with Clayton Christensen, who was a professor at Harvard Business School who had originated uh, the theory of disruptive innovation and disruptive technologies. And he was grappling with, okay, I can describe how disruption roils markets, but how do we know what that next wave is? How do we know where the puck is, is going? And he settled on this theory, which he called jobs to be done, which holds that fundamentally people aren't out there to buy products and services. They're out to get certain things done in their lives. And that can apply to consumer, it can apply to uh, in a B2B context as well. And you've really got to understand those fundamental motivations to see where the opportunity and threat lies and be able to, you know, really widen the playing field. Uh, so you can discover these, these vectors that maybe your competitors haven't. So we try to understand what is fundamentally changing in, uh, in those motivations or how can those motivations be satisfied in very different ways. Um, you know, that certainly came into play here with COVID, right? Where you've got some of those core motivations shifting. Um, but it's not just about that, right? We have to understand where is there inertia baked in and where has, you know, take COVID example, although it could apply to any sort of industry disruption, uh, where is inertia broken? Uh, and, you know, what opportunities does this create, which may only be temporary before inertia resets, but let's go and, and follow up those motivations and be able to deliver in fundamentally new ways for people now. So you want to understand how is your customer motivation? How is the behavior? How is the way they're judging solutions? How is that changing uh, that's going to open up all sorts of opportunities uh, beyond just doing the same old. How do you know which customer behaviors are here to stay? So if it's you're looking at what's broken and what's shifting and what may be temporary before it resets, how do you know which of the behaviors are here for good? Right. So that's the the ultimate question we're trying to drive at here for for sure. 
And this is where jobs to be done is an especially useful framework to, to use in this context. Um, obviously, if you ask customers to answer that question, you know, which of your behaviors are going to persist, they, they wouldn't be able to, to tell you or sort of their, their guesses would, would probably not be the, the most accurate way of getting at it. But the good thing here is that you're not so much looking simply at the behavior or the trend itself, but more so at the underlying motivation or job and context or job drivers that are driving this, this particular behavior. Um, so by looking at the, the foundations of it, why is it that this customer behavior even exists to begin with? And by monitoring the prevalence of these different jobs and job drivers, which are certainly quantifiable, it's much easier to tell uh, via interviews, via mass surveys, um, which of these behaviors are more likely to stick around. Um, there are also a few signals that you can sort of monitor over time on top of testing for general prevalence of jobs and job drivers. And we mentioned quite a few in the paper. We have a separate paper on that as well. But, you know, anything from figuring out, sort of looking at when new approaches start to be appealing. Um, you know, one customer behavior that might have been somewhat fringe at one point might suddenly become much more prevalent because a solution that had been around for a long time suddenly became cheaper or more convenient. I'm thinking of a lot of examples in the, in the tech industry, of course, um, that's an example of sort of one behavior sort of being on the borders of, of prevalence suddenly becoming very central. Um, certainly, whenever critical mass is a very important factor as well. Um, another important signal to look at is infrastructure. So by that, I mean both the physical infrastructure, um, you know, sort of an example could be uh, fuel cell vehicles, making sure that you have enough stations um, that are available to uh, power those those vehicles that if, if there's enough of those, then that infrastructure will lock in the change around making those vehicles much more usable and appealing to customers. Um, but it's not just physical infrastructure. You've got the business infrastructure as well. If you need to rely on certain vendors or partners for a solution to take off, if those partners or vendors are not very present or very common, then that's going to be much more difficult to sort of make that solution more available to customers and really cement that behavior. So there are many signals you can look at, but, but overall the idea is by looking at jobs and job drivers and the context of for these customer behaviors, you can really monitor that much more reliably than by simply looking at the behavior itself. Okay, so you've mapped your uncertainty matrix, you've looked at jobs to be done, job drivers, you have all of this information to sift through. What do you do next? <laughs> Where do you go from here? Right. So this is the um, typically the, the part that's the most uh, difficult for a lot of clients that we've seen use traditional methods is, you know, when you have all this data in front of you coming from a variety of sources, how do you make sense of the chaos? What, what do you start focusing on? Um, especially given that these are typically people with other things, going, other things on their plate, other priorities. How do you how do you sort of decide where to go next? Um, and really our key guideline here is essentially focusing on the trends that are both the most uncertain and the most impactful to you as an organization, to the market as a whole, but by extension to you as an, as an organization. Um, so ideally, once you've isolated those most uncertain and impactful trends, you can create a set of matrices where each trend becomes an axis. And by using these different axes, 
um, and toggling those different variables, you start to map out different possible futures depending on how each trend plays out. Um, so as you look at these different futures, you can then tease out what the threats and opportunities um, might be. And by extension, sort of working your way backwards, what the action implications are for your company and how you should strategize. So one example that we mentioned in the paper is around retail banking. Um, there are many different trends that you could focus on, but uh, here the idea was let's build out a matrix where you focus on two possible uh, variables. One is the importance of physical branches versus going solely digital. And the other is the extent to which banks would become more customer-centric or product-centric. So by looking at these two axes um, crossing together to form a matrix, in each of these four futures, you start to think about what the threats and opportunities are. And again, working your way backwards, what does that mean for you as a retail bank? There are other examples, of course, but this is the one that we figure we would focus on um, in the paper. And the number of axes really varies depending on the trends that you're looking at. Uh, we've seen museums, for instance, focus on uh, more than two trends um, throughout the pandemic because they had multiple um, different uh, priorities on their minds. It really depends on, on the specifics of your, of your organization. Is this process at all different than analyzing sort of best and worst case scenarios? Right. So the intent is actually quite similar. The idea is to look at all possible outcomes. It can be very easy to gravitate towards what feels like the rosiest of futures and just decide we're going to be working with that and try to strategize around that. Uh, but it's very important to keep an open mind to futures that are less than ideal. So the sort of working out with best, middle, worst case scenarios, it's, it has a similar intent. It's not, it's not sort of the, the objective is the right one. However, that approach assumes that you've got a single type of best case scenario, a single type of worst case scenario, a single type of middle case scenario. And the reality is that you can have, you know, an infinite number of best worst case scenarios that you would have to, to work with. Um, so the idea here is sort of focus on not just, you know, a single of each, but really look at what trends might conflate to create different scenarios of different levels of risk and opportunities for you. So trying not to bucket yourself in an arbitrary number of scenarios from the get-go. I mean, it's one thing to focus on three, but you very well may be missing out on key opportunities or threats by doing so. So it's just sort of course correcting an approach that otherwise shares a very similar objective to ours. Yeah, people will often in a best worst case scenario, they'll build it around a financial model and then they'll just have different values for the, the various variables that are part of the model. But, you know, our point is that these scenarios are, are different. So it's not always the same variables that are in play. Uh, sure, you can look at, at some things that might vary uh, and that are common across scenarios. But, you know, the history, not just of, of the COVID world, but the pre-COVID world too, is that the world was changing in all sorts of ways. Uh, and so you have to sort of push these scenarios to look at worlds that are all plausible, but just fundamentally different. Okay, so you have all of these scenarios after all of this research. Is this the list that you go forth with? Or is there some other process or thinking that you need to do once you have your short list of scenarios? Right, so you're going to have a lot of possibilities out there, and you really need to narrow it down. So uh, first of all, you want to go back to that uncertainty matrix and think about, all right, what do we really know? What's uncertain? How's our, our view of the world changed a little bit since we created that uncertainty matrix? 
but also how does that matrix influence how we're looking at the potential responses? Are we just gravitating to what we know and ignoring the unknown unknowns? Can we uh, reduce our risks a little bit by doing some uh, little experiments or creating an option for growth in an area? You'd also want to have a little bit of a portfolio plan about how much you're willing to take on. Uh, Before you start thinking about which investments in particular are, are the most attractive to you, you want to think through, are we looking for two things? Are we looking for five? What's our time frame for realizing returns? How much risk and what types of risk are we willing to take on? That's really going to influence that list of potential investments. Uh, and then you can take what should be a pretty long list of potential things to do and put it into a, a, an idea funnel that should be wide at its mouth, but very rapidly narrow down to a handful of things you're going to pursue. And you use decision criteria about those that are influenced by the scenarios that are influenced by the, the uh, uncertainty makes, matrix that you created, as well as your portfolio plan of what you're ultimately seeking to get out at the end of the funnel. You have then a list of investments that are probably going to look pretty different, that are probably uh, guaranteeing a future against different sorts of scenarios, um, but which will also hopefully play together in some way and create some synergy so it's not just a disconnected series of bets, uh, but it looks coherent as a, a whole portfolio of, uh, of bets that, you, that you're going to place. Thank you. So, we, so we've now walked through the four steps, uncertainty matrix, customer behaviors, alternative futures, investment portfolio. Can you help me put it all together with um, perhaps a real-world example, maybe one of your clients from, from the last two years? So how they use that idea, the, the principles and process of future casting um, in the midst of, of the pandemic? Um, sure. So let's take something that's really topical for the pandemic. Uh, we can look at diagnostics. Uh, lots of change in the diagnostics market. Certainly grew a lot. But how is it going to change uh, in an ongoing sort of way? So we worked with a big uh, diagnostics company to first, we separated those facts from the assumptions. We, we did the uncertainty matrix. Uh, and you know, we can look at a bunch of revenue expansion opportunities to look at further. Uh, and you know, the things came out around telehealth, for instance. What do we know about telehealth? What don't we know? What do we think we know, but we're not quite sure? Um, how does this play in different sorts of situations around, for instance, how do we engage with, uh, with primary care doctors differently than nurses, differently than specialists? Uh, what are our big assumptions and opportunities around each? So uh, you know, creating a set of uncertainty uh, matrices there. And then we had to understand related to that, what are those coming customer behaviors? So in that case, we um, undertook a few dozen interviews with uh, target customers to understand how their behaviors are changing. What are the the motivating jobs to be done that are uh, really influencing those behavior changes? What are the factors that create inertia or break inertia, create new infrastructure? Uh, 
and then we could evaluate the appeal of different ideas, understanding how those behaviors are changing. And then third, we developed the alternative futures. We had different uh, scenarios. So in that case, we, we looked at the employee point of view as well as an employer point of view uh, in the U.S. healthcare market that differs in you know, more more government-directed healthcare markets. Um, so, for instance, for an employee point of view, you could say that a lot of on-site care for at workplace would be convenient, whereas uh, for an employer point of view, you might look at a scenario around um, you know healthcare is a tool for employee recruitment, or more that healthcare is just a cost you want to minimize. Uh, and as you look at how those uh, converge, you can then have very different sorts of scenarios. And one, for instance, there would be full integration of a workplace uh, and healthcare, whereas uh, for another, there might be an off-site delivery of healthcare, but you'd still be willing as an employer to pay a premium for superior access to healthcare as a recruitment tool. And then fourth, you create that portfolio plan. Um, how many ventures were they willing to uh, you know, get behind? How does that react or influence their current product roadmap, the way uh, they undertake their sales model, um, what their marketing messages should be? Um, how does that impact what they're going to be developing in the future? Maybe it's M&A, maybe uh, it's organic development. It's also things they wanted to get out of because you can't do everything. Um, that influenced that list of investments as well. So it's a step-by-step process. There's a lot of different elements. The reason we have the rigor is to orchestrate these different elements in a way that all sort of build on each other and make sense together. I'm curious, how long does a, uh, this rigorous process typically typically take, or is it just completely variable? So, you know, it depends on how much they already know. Um, and of course it depends on things like, is this global in scope or is it multi-market or not? The key factor is really how many uncertainties do we need to lay to rest with some primary market research? Um, you can step through this whole thing in a period of six weeks. If you've got a lot of facts on the table, uh, the most this would typically take would be, I'd say, about four months, uh, just because you know organizations don't have the patience to embark on humongous, long initiatives. We don't want this to be some academic exercise. It needs to be practical. It needs to relate to business priorities. Uh, so that's typically the cycle time that's required in order to do that. Most organizations or many organizations already have some, some kind of long-term vision in place. So what advice do you have for leaders to incorporate a process like future casting into their existing plans and processes? Right. So this is where the point that Stephen made earlier about sort of how much pre-existing work there is, is, is quite critical here. You don't want to give the impression that you're duplicating other people's work. So starting with a really good lay of the land and understanding what already has been done by your fellow coworkers, by your team. Um, is really important. And then once you have that, uh, making sure that whatever future casting exercise, whatever parts of the process you decide to to take on, because it's quite modular, you could start at phase two if you already have phase one done. So wherever you're starting, you're including your company's current assumptions and vision about the future in your work to pressure test. The last thing you want is to end the exercise with results or a process that 
didn't tie into that vision or didn't include it as part of that work because it essentially makes the results a lot less relevant to, to your team. If you come out of the process with results that directly either question or confirm or validate your company's ideas about the future, then people are certainly much more likely to listen to you and, and sort of take that into account as part of the company strategy. So a lot of it is just honoring what's already been, been done, what's already in place, and accounting for um, existing ideas about the future. Okay. And I imagine that this, this new way of thinking maybe met with some resistance, some, some organizational resistance or hesitancy. What advice would you give to, or pointers to, to overcome that um, organizational resistance? Absolutely. I mean, like you said, any sort of large, large change, um, different kind of thinking is going to be met with some obstacles along the way. And each organization has its own unique hurdles to some extent, but there are a few general best practices that we've seen work across different organizations of all shapes and sizes. Um, So one obvious uh, practice is to make sure you're involving the right stakeholders at the right time. Um, So whether it's just letting them know what you're doing or making them really giving them the opportunity to be involved in some key points of the process, uh, whatever it is, just making sure you secure the right internal buy-in um, at key points during your future casting exercise. Um, so that's one. Another approach is making sure that whatever results you come out with, you can craft them, you can weave them in a really compelling story that you can share around and will be memorable and inspiring to your uh, fellow coworkers. So, I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a storytelling component for sure. I mean, generally you, you want people to, to want to, to hear more about it and sort of run with it. Um, so making sure that it, it breeds an interesting um, and shareable story is, is important. And then finally, uh, one other method that we've seen really work in a variety of contexts, even including outside of future casting, but in terms of, you know, general innovation is setting up a system that rewards both decisive action and inexpensive ways of, you know, moving forward and making progress. So one example would be, you know, incentivizing teams to cut their losses early when you're exploring different trends. I'm sort of, you know, putting uh, a system in place that really rewards making relatively rapid forward action. Um, Because again, very few companies have the patience to sit through a year plus of this kind of work. So you really want to show people that this is not just sort of a zombie project going on. You sort of have to have, have things keep, keep move forward. You mentioned the first one was getting the right stakeholders um, involved. Are there certain um, people that you or departments or functions, um, key stakeholders that you would recommend be part of the future casting exercise? So you certainly want people to be, uh, involved who are customer facing. Um, but you should have R and D there, for instance, uh, and push them to think not only what are they doing, but what are their suppliers doing, for instance, or, you know, what do they see competitively? Uh, you know, what's some of the pattern action, uh, that's happening, right? Use ways to peek around corners, uh, that those folks might have as well. Uh, you'd want to find some people who are fairly recently joining the company, um, right. Cause they might have a different perspective. Uh, you could use some people who are pretty new to their career 
uh, but are unafraid to challenge the status quo. Uh, fresh thinking is important. Now, obviously, as, as Charlotte said, we want to have people there too who are going to catch the ball uh, and who are you know, going to have to be involved in the implementation of what comes out. Um, but you're trying to get some fresh oxygen in the room here. Uh, so having that range of perspectives is really quite useful. You mentioned um, fresh thinking. So I would imagine that it's helpful to have an outside perspective, such as um, an on-demand <laughs> independent consultant or boutique firm like New Markets Advisors. Is that something that you recommend for an exercise like future casting? Uh, I do. Um, uh, look, there are situations where internal work can really uh, you know, do everything you need to. But if you're trying to step back and ask really hard questions in a structured way, frame scenarios, think about these things from different perspectives, bring in external sorts of trends, potentially uh, do some primary market research as well, then outside help is extremely useful to get this done in a way that is uh, objective, that brings in that perspective that proceeds relatively quickly and that can make sense of all these different strands and put it together into a really cohesive, easily disseminated, actionable set of recommendations. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one last thing. Um, any, any parting um, advice for leaders who are um, faced with a daunting task of, of <laughs> looking at an uncertain future. Any any last bits of advice you want to give to leaders at this moment in time? So I think you need to step back and think in the last five, maybe 10 years of your career, what surprised you and why is it surprised you? And can you take steps now to uh, remove those sources of surprise, right? The surprises vary. The sources of surprise often don't. Uh, and the reasons you get surprised often don't. Uh, so that's really important. Uh, I think now, as, as you say, Jen, we're at a time of huge transition economically in terms of uh, organizational and customer behavior. Uh, so rather than just let it swirl together, try to disaggregate those things and try to understand what are you most uncertain about and what are the consequences Uh, That, at least, I think will get you going to thinking about what your responses might be. Thanks, Steve. Charlotte, anything from you? I would say sort of along the lines of what we've been talking about when it comes to, you know, making sure those efforts have impact within your organization, just finding others within your organization or outside and peer groups um, that are also looking to think about these things differently and just sort of fostering those exchanges. I think it's very easy for people to feel, especially in a remote setting, as we all continue to sort of work from home, um, that we're sort of working, operating in different silos, but you're certainly not alone in working through these, these challenging issues. And I think really trying to find peers that you can sort of exchange with and build a, a greater desire to, change your company's vision for the future is, is important. So that would be uh, a reminder I would want to make to, to folks out there. <laughs> Thanks, Charlotte. I, I, Charlotte, I think that's a, a perfect ending. Just a reminder, you are not alone. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And this has been um, an incredible, incredible um, time talking with you today. I have learned so much. Um, so thank you so, so much for your time. 
As a reminder, our guests today have been Stephen Wonker and Charlotte Desfrat, New Markets Advisors, and I'm Jennifer Napier, Chief Marketing Officer for Business Talent Group. To start a project with New Markets Advisors or thousands of other highly skilled independent consultants, visit businesstalentgroup.com. You can subscribe for more of our conversations with on-demand experts and future work thought leaders wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks for listening.